They said there's a lot of dead bodies at the club. I declared a state of emergency for Orange County. We're going to provide all the resources that anyone needs. Tell me where my son is. I told everybody, get to the floor, and I started pulling everyone down, and that's when everybody kind of just fell to the floor. We know enough to say that this was an act of terror and an act of hate. And as Americans, we are united in grief, in outrage, and in resolve to defend our people. Here's ABC News correspondent Alex Stone. The deadliest terror attack in American history. 50 people killed, 53 injured, all at the hands of one man suspected of opening fire on the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, a gay club. We're finding out more about the gunman, Omar Mateen, 29 years old, from Florida, born in New York, a U.S. citizen, his family from Afghanistan. He had been on the FBI's radar but he was also working since 2007 for a security company. He may have known some law enforcement tactics. He had two guns, an AR-style rifle and a handgun he bought legally. We want to begin this hour. ABC's Jim Ryan is on scene live with me from Orlando. Jim, good evening to you. Good evening, Alex. 24 hours ago, the crowds were just beginning to gather inside Pulse. Eventually, that crowd would grow to more than 300, perhaps as many as 350 people there uh, to dance and to socialize on a Saturday evening. At about 2 o'clock in the morning, half an hour before closing time, last call had been issued by the bartenders. Everyone, order your last drinks, settle up your tabs. People were beginning to make their way to the exits. That's when somebody walked in and opened fire. The gunfire would continue for about three hours. It would culminate in a hostage situation. Finally, a SWAT team in the morning at about 5 o'clock rolled into the area with an armored personnel carrier, punching holes in the side of the building and extracting the final hostages and also engaging the gunman in one last barrage of gunfire. There was an exchange of gunfire. As many as 11 police officers and county sheriff's deputies engaged this man. Uh, he did die. One uh, officer was slightly injured. Within the last hour tonight, Alex, a rainstorm has moved across Orlando, seeming to cleanse this street and the people who have been standing here waiting for answers about their loved ones, but certainly not washing away the pain that they're feeling and the shock that this entire community is experiencing right now, Alex. And Jim, there are so many tonight who still don't know the fate of their loved ones. They have not heard any word, and they assume at this point that their loved ones died inside that club. I, and it's a safe assumption, I think. I, I mean, there are 53 people who are wounded and, and we assume are hospitalized. And unless, unless you're a family member, uh, you really can't get information from hospitals on those people because of HIPAA privacy provisions. So uh, unless that person has died and so far only seven names have been released, then you're not likely to find out much information about somebody who's been injured. ABC's Jim Ryan live on the scene tonight in Orlando. Jim, thank you. Don't go far. We're going to come back to you this hour. The number of dead, impossible to comprehend. The number of survivors, a miracle. Jillian Amador was injured by glass during the attack, was treated and released. She spoke to ABC News exclusively. Well, I was there with some friends and we were having a normal Saturday when we go out and we were drinking in the main dance floor, like around the VIP area. Then all of a sudden we heard... We thought it was fireworks, we didn't think it was real, and then we kept hearing them, like, back to back, and then I saw people jumping to the floor, so we just panicked and we all ran, and then I just fell like everybody else to try to dodge the bullets, and we were just running. 
Um, a friend picked me up because I ran. I just didn't look back and I kept running to the McDonald's down the street from the Pulse and then a friend dropped me off in front of the hospital. They wouldn't let me in until they knew that I had I was blood everywhere on my hands. It was around 2.30 or 3 o'clock I want to say and it was completely full of police with like shotguns or some, or some big gun. They weren't letting anybody in or out. They said something maybe about a bomb threat and they had the dogs sniffing around looking for something suspicious. There was people on the floor everywhere. I don't know if anybody had been shot. I just, everywhere there's people on the floor. Yes, a lot of screaming and a lot of running. But everyone that I came with was safe, is safe. I'm worried about my friends, yes. Worried about Orlando and the nightlife doesn't make you want to go out anymore. This is crazy. This You see that on the news, but you never see it in your home. And a lot of us don't want to even go out. In her own words, Jillian Amador, injured by glass during the attack, treated and released. These stories always leave us asking why. Former special agent, uh, FBI special agent, and ABC News contributor Steve Gomez is with me here from Los Angeles. And Steve, take us inside the mind of a suspect. What is going on in this case, whether it be terrorism or not, somebody walking in and opening fire? Well, it starts with the fact that they are mentally off. It, you know, it, if you've ever had somebody uh, close to you or you've been involved in, uh, you know, somebody that's committed suicide, everybody always asks the question, why did they do that? And, and, and you don't really know why. Well, it's very, in some cases, it's similar dealing with a terrorism suspect, an active shooter. They have gone to a different place. And so mentally, they are now interested in, in killing for, for whatever reason. In this case, you know, ISIS uh, sympathizers, somebody that's ascribing to the ISIS ideology, um, radicalization has occurred. Uh, they are doing it for this cause that ISIS has basically recruited them, radicalized them to, to commit the act for. Um, they're going into this situation, in this case, the nightclub. Um, they are looking to maximize the carnage the, the death toll. Um, and they are also going into this because of the ideology, thinking that they are going to become martyr by dying for the cause. So they have the mentality that they're going to go in there, they're going to kill as many people as possible, and they're going to die in a firefight. And, and that's going to take them to some place that they falsely um, ascribe to uh, thinking that it'll be a, a good place for them. And that's what you're dealing with. That is what we have here in the case of Omar Mateen. And we know Omar Mateen, according to our sources, called 911, pledging his allegiance to ISIS shortly after he began his shooting. Uh, it would seem in this case, Steve, that when he went in there, he went in there to kill as many as he could and to die in the process. Exactly. Ex exactly. That's that's what we have. And uh, what's, what's so concerning to me you know, we've, we've been seeing these types of attacks so often now over the last uh, several years, uh, especially the last couple of years, um, you know, starting with Garland, Texas, that, that situation, which fortunately didn't result in any deaths other than the two terrorists. But uh, not only here in the U.S., but uh, worldwide, Paris, Brussels, um, you're, you're seeing so many of these. And, uh, and, and you know, these terrorists, they're learning from each situation that is occurring before them. Because they're watching it on TV. They're listening to people like myself and, and other uh, security specialists and former uh, agents and officers um, who are analyzing the situation. They, they're seeing what's happening and how each terrorist 
handled their attack and what law enforcement did, and they're learning from that. So in this case, what's so concerning to me is the fact that this guy chose a nightclub at 2 a.m. when everybody was having a great time, drinking, their hair was down, their guards were probably down. You know, there, there was a security guard, a, a law enforcement officer that was there armed, you know, which, which you always, you know, hope that somebody will be there with a gun to be able to stop the situation. And, and it sounds like, you know, that person tried to take action. But, uh, but again, you know, the, the loud noise, the, the, the music, everybody's jumping around, having a great time. And it just was a recipe for chaos. And this guy took advantage of it. Steve Gomez, former head of the uh, L.A. FBI office and current ABC News consultant. Steve, thank you very much. We're going to get back to you uh, in a, a couple of moments. Don't go far. Today, President Obama talking about this today, asking for the nation's prayer. Today, as Americans, we grieve the brutal murder, a horrific massacre of dozens of innocent people. We pray for their families who are grasping for answers with broken hearts. The president very quick today to call it terrorism, as did the candidates on the campaign trail. We know that Mateen was interviewed twice in 2013. He was interviewed in 2014 as well. He was on the radar of the FBI, but each time was cleared. They couldn't find anything that would show that he was planning anything illegal. Today, he carried out this attack. You're listening to live coverage, Terror at the Nightclub from ABC News. This is a special presentation from ABC News, Terror at the Nightclub. Here's ABC News correspondent Alex Stone. What do we know about Omar Mateen? We've been learning more today about the gunman. ABC News Chief Investigative Correspondent Brian Ross has spent the day digging into his background and says he was not a stranger to the FBI. Brian, good evening to you. Well, good evening. He was well known to the FBI counterterrorism squads in Florida because he was interviewed by FBI agents three times over the last three years, in 2013 and 2014, after he allegedly told co-workers he had ties to known terrorists. Now, the FBI says they investigated and cleared him after doing the three interviews and concluded he did not pose a threat to the country at that time. As a result, there were no criminal charges and nothing on his record that could block the purchase of the two guns he used in the shooting today, which were bought just in the last week. He is not a person who is disqualified because of that, so he can legally walk into a facility and purchase the firearms, according to the ATF agents now investigating. And they have now identified the two guns, a Glock pistol and an assault-style rifle, which uh, must have been reloaded given the number of uh, rounds he fired. Brian, any indication that in the last couple of days leading up to this attack that the FBI had anything on it, on him, that they were watching him at all, that, that he had raised any flags uh, past those 2013 and 2014 incidents? Nothing at all. He was not under surveillance. He had been put under surveillance back in 2013, but he was not under surveillance. Uh, what triggered their interest back in 2013 were claims he made that somehow he was connected to the Tsarnaevs, the brothers in Boston who pulled off the uh, Boston Marathon bombings, and then later that he claimed he was close to a person who had gone from the U.S. to Syria and become a uh, suicide bomber there. And while, in fact, they found some tangential connections, not enough, they said, to uh, put him on any watch list. So he was essentially free and clear, came out of nowhere.
Do we know anything about his background at this point? Any travels uh, overseas? It appears he worked for a security company that he may have had some law enforcement training of some kind as uh, working for that security company. Anything we know about the background of this guy? Well, we know he was born in New York. He's an American citizen. Uh, he attended high school in Stewart, Florida. His parents are immigrants from Afghanistan. He went to a kind of junior college, Indian River State School College uh, in Florida, got an associate degree in criminology, and for the last nine years or so, has worked as a security guard for a private company, including posts at the uh, state courthouse in Fort Pierce. In fact, some of the pictures he's posted on his uh, MySpace site include shots of him wearing an NYPD t-shirt. ABC News Chief Investigative Correspondent Brian Ross. Brian, thank you for your work today. Uh, who is Omar Mateen? We're talking a bit about his background, but what about where he was living and the, the people living around him before he carried out the attack this morning? ABC's Lindsay Janice is live outside his apartment in Fort Pierce, Florida, joining me now. And Lindsay, you've been talking to his neighbors and to his imam and, and so many folks, and they say, at least his imam, that he was changing in recent days and months. Hi, Alex. His mom told me that over the last 10 years, he's noticed a change in Omar Mateen. He said that he started out uh, much more sociable and then became more withdrawn. And in recent years, he said he was very quiet. He would show up at the last minute to the mandatory part of congregation. He would bring his toddler son with him, his very young son with him. And he would, he would worship, he would pray, and then he would leave immediately. He wasn't rude, but he didn't have any friends, and he didn't stop and socialize. Uh, he said that his family members also go to the mosque, so they would not go together. The mother and the father attend that mosque, and Omar Mateen's three sisters also attended. They're in the neighborhood where he lived. Describe the neighborhood, uh, what neighbors are saying. The FBI has been searching his apartment today, correct? The FBI has been outside of the apartment since daybreak. They have been there all day long, as has uh, people from the Sheriff's Department, from the St. Lucie County, County Sheriff's Department. We have not been able to see much of the action. We know the bomb squad was there. There were concerns about explosives. Neighbors have been concerned. They largely evacuated this apartment complex where Omar Mateen lived. Uh, we did get to speak to a neighbor, and she said that she, she knows who he is. She sees him often. She thinks that he is associated with more than one of the units in this apartment complex because she thinks he has family members or close friends that live at two other units. She's seen him uh, at those units as well. She said he's very nice, but keeps to himself. She says there's a lot of traveling that goes on, a lot of back and forth, a lot of bags, a lot of luggage. Um, that that was that was her main observation. Any indication how long he had lived there? It looks like he came to the area in 2009. In fact, we've seen uh, a, a document uh, that showed that unit sold to him. Um, and to Mary Sadiq in 2009, and that would coincide when he uh, was at the, I believe, at the junior college uh, in this area as well. But this area is not far from where he was born and where his parents now live in Port St. Lucie. ABC News Chief Investigative Correspondent Pierre Thomas joining me now. Good evening, Pierre. Good to be with you. 
So tell us what you're learning now about uh, Mateen's background and the investigation uh, into carrying this out. Well, we learned today that he was interviewed by the FBI as many as five times, excuse me, three times. And that has law enforcement officials uh, trying to figure out how he still was able to buy those weapons. He clearly didn't have any kind of criminal record. But I can tell you that there's a great amount of concern about why didn't the system blink red when someone who had been interviewed by the FBI three times went in to buy those weapons. And we've heard from the FBI saying that, and those who used to work for the FBI, that once they were clear, that they were cleared at that point and that they wouldn't go necessarily on a, a database to, to flag for buying weapons or for working in the, the security industry. But are there some saying that that should have flagged at that point? Well, I think you're going to have a big reassessment going on uh, right now uh, where law enforcement officials are going to have to reassess whether you know they should at least have some sense of when someone who's been interviewed in connection with terrorism cases. Uh, in one case, al-Qaeda wannabe types that the man uh, said he might have been associated with or knew. Another case involving uh, ISIS where uh, something came up in connection with uh, Mateen's name. Again, why wouldn't the FBI want to know that kind of information if a, a person like that is going to buy weapons? That's going to be the question. Pierre, after this and after San Bernardino, we've heard you say for so long that the big concern is that the, the sympathizer with ISIS or with the, some terrorist group. How concerned is law enforcement tonight uh, of this has happened, San Bernardino has happened, that there could be more out there? Well, here's the thing. Right now, the FBI has uh, more than 800 suspected ISIS sympathizers under some level of investigation in all 50 states. You can imagine the tempo and the manpower that is required to uh, do investigations of all those people. Now, there's a smaller subset that they have who are under 24-hour surveillance, but you have to reach a threshold to be investigated at that level. And I can tell you that it's a really difficult decision that they're making every day about who is dangerous and who's not. ABC News Chief Investigative Correspondent uh, Pierre Thomas, uh, Chief Justice Correspondent, rather, Pierre Thomas. Pierre, thank you. Uh, as we learn more now about Omar Mateen, we know he first became known to the FBI in 2013. That's when they became began their investigation into a multiple interviews are now happening at this hour with family members and with friends of Mateen to try to figure out were there signs before this was carried out today? Did he say anything? Was there planning? Was he working with anybody else? We are told by law enforcement at this point that there is no indication that there is a larger organization like ISIS that was funding this or directing it. It does appear he may have been inspired by ISIS and that may have caused him to carry this out. Made a 911 call just before pledging his allegiance to ISIS as he was carrying it out. You're listening to live coverage Terror at the Nightclub from ABC News. This is a special presentation from ABC News Terror at the Nightclub. Here's ABC News correspondent Alex Stone. Less than 24 hours after the deadly nightclub attack in Orlando, so many are still asking why. ABC's Jim Ryan got to Orlando this morning and joins us live. Good evening again, Jim. 
Good evening, Alex. The prevailing opinion seems to be that it was an act of terrorism, perhaps inspired by and maybe some say directed by ISIS. That's still one uh, matter to be worked out. There are others, though, who say that because a gay bar was targeted for this, that homosexuality may have been the target of this attack. That's where Caleb Collins falls in. I knew a few friends. Uh, they're all completely fine. They are all safe. Um, they're all a little... You know, shell shot. So far, though, nearly 24 hours after this all began, only seven names of the 50 people killed have been released. Alex. Jim, today's shooting in Orlando, writing a new chapter in the deadly history of mass shootings here in the U.S. ABC's Mark Remillard takes a look at this tragic past. Alex, until today, it was 32 deaths that marked the worst mass shooting incident in American history. The sound of gunfire caught on cell phone video the morning of April 16, 2007 when Soong Hee Cho first killed two students in a dormitory at Virginia Tech University and a few hours later armed with a Glock 19 and Walther P-22 pistol opened fire inside Norris Hall. It is now confirmed that we have 31 deaths from the Norris Hall including the gunman. It took just nine minutes for the massacre to play out and in the end as police forced their way into the hall Cho shot himself bringing the day's death toll to 33. That number at Virginia Tech was nearly outdone by another horrific shooting just a few years later, one that shook the nation and seemed unthinkable. 20 children, seven adults, including the principal, and the gunman killed himself. And it was about 9.30 in the morning on December 14, 2012, when gunman Adam Lanza shot and killed his mother at their Newtown, Connecticut home. Armed with a Bushmaster semi-automatic rifle, Lanza then drove to Sandy Hook Elementary School, where his mother worked, opening fire on school officials in a classroom full of children. President Obama spoke in the wake of the tragedy, wiping tears from his eyes. This evening, Michelle and I will do what I know every parent in America will do, which is hug our children a little tighter. 20 kids between the ages of 6 and 7, as well as 6 school workers, died before Lanza shot and killed himself. Going back even further in memory, mass shooting incidences aren't necessarily rarer, but the 23 deaths in a shooting at a packed restaurant in Colleen, Texas in 1991 marked the worst mass shooting for the next 16 years. The police department here in Colleen is describing this entire massacre as a very complicated jigsaw puzzle. As heard on the local Channel 8 at the time, 35-year-old George Hennard rammed his pickup truck into the front window of Luby's cafeteria, then opened fire, gunning down 23 employees and customers before killing himself. Seven years before that, the first mass shooting in the U.S. that killed more than 20 people took place at a McDonald's in San Diego. 41-year-old James Huberty opened fire in a San Ysidro neighborhood on July 18, 1984, killing 21 and wounding 19 more until a police officer shot and killed him. But now with today's events, America has an even deadlier mass shooting to top the list. And unlike these others, the shooting at the Pulse nightclub, an apparent terrorist attack. Alex? Now so many victims yet to be accounted for and identified among the missing. Christine Leinenen's son, Christopher, in her own words. I haven't heard anything. I've been here since 4 o'clock in the morning. I've been waiting. I've waiting by the emergency room to see if anybody gets called in. My son is Christopher Leinenen. They said there's a lot of dead bodies at the club. That's a crime scene. They can't identify anybody. So it could be hours and hours before we find out. The hospital said that there are some 
bodies at the hospital that came in and they died. And they're not identifiable yet either. And then there are a few that are in critical condition that aren't identified yet. I called him last night at six o'clock. He was at SeaWorld. And I was just giving him some information that he was gonna need to know for my upcoming surgery. And I left him with, I love you, Chris. And then I just happened to wake up at three o'clock and I was checking my Facebook and I saw that one of Christopher's friends, Brandon, had posted on Facebook that there was a shooting at the Pulse and he doesn't know where his friends were. So I texted him and called him and came right right here to the hospital and we've been waiting since four this morning brandon was in the club at the time of the shooting he told me that he had just happened to be in the bathroom and he heard multi multiple gunshots and he was able to run out the front door and while he was standing by the club door and the ambulances were coming in, he saw that my son's boyfriend had multiple gunshots and was being taken by the ambulance. But he never saw Christopher come out. And we haven't been able to call him or text him. I just wanted to say though that this is a club that nobody wants to be in. And please, could we do something with the assault weapons so that we could stop this club from ever getting any new members? I beg all of you, please. I wanted to let you know about my son. When he was in high school, he started the Gay Straight Alliance. And he won the Anna Frank Humanitarian Award to bring gays and straights together. I've been so proud of him for that thing. Please, let's all just get along. We're on this earth for such a short time. Let's try to get rid of the hatred and the violence. Please. In a mother's heartache and anguish tonight, waiting for word about her son. You're listening to live coverage, Terror at the Nightclub from ABC News. This is a special presentation from ABC News, Terror at the Nightclub. Here's ABC News correspondent Alex Stone. 
Police have long been worried about a lone wolf-style attack. Those individuals who might be incited or encouraged to carry out attacks because of propaganda and the rhetoric of terrorist groups. Former FBI Special Agent and ABC News contributor Steve Gomez joins me live again to talk about now, Steve, how you track and intercept these lone wolves. How do police do it? Well, they, they have to really start by working with the community because the fact is the way ISIS in particular has uh, trained and messaged out to these lone wolves and these uh, homegrown radicalized terrorists is to don't travel, uh, don't communicate with other people, uh, don't, don't talk about your ideology and use communication devices when you do use them that are uh, encrypted. Uh, this, is the, this is their playbook. They realize, based on history and law enforcement uh, action, that law enforcement is looking for informants and for people that are willing to cooperate with them to let them know that somebody needs to be looked at. Uh, they know that the public is, uh, is watching and are trying to identify, um, you know, if you're radicalized, if you're interested in committing some kind of terrorist attack. The, the terrorists know this. ISIS knows this. And they're communicating that. So they're trying to get their sympathizers and their supporters and the people that are willing to act to keep it quiet, keep it on the down low, and, uh, and then go out and act, go out and kill. And that's what you're seeing. Um, so this is an incredibly difficult way to, um, to handle dealing with terrorism and it starts with the community because the community they are on the front line they are seeing these people that are becoming radicalized and want to commit an attack whether it's your friends family neighbors co-workers we all have people that are in our circle that we deal with every day and we see changes we see comments we see rhetoric and it's important for those people in the community to step forward and, and and to do something. And we just saw that with the Santa, you know, unfortunately we didn't see that with Orlando um, today, but we did see that with the incident in Santa Monica in the Los Angeles area, where there were some people that, that came forward and reported uh, this individual um, to the police and uh, police were able to take action and they may have prevented a, another attack. Quite possibly. Former FBI Special Agent, ABC News contributor Steve Gomez. Steve, thanks. The stories of terror, survival, and the strength of the human spirit continue to come out. Jeanette McCoy helped those injured in the attacks. She speaks exclusively to us about those terrifying moments. Well, it was around um, 2 a.m. already at that time. The club was kind of, in a sense, winding down and, um, you know, I, I was dancing with my, my friend, uh, Angel Cologne, and uh, right after that, I turned right to my brother to start dancing with him, and um, that's when the shots all of a sudden started to ring out. I mean, it was just, just nonstop. At that moment, I turned around slightly to see where the shots were coming from, and I saw a guy with a gun, but I didn't turn around fully because there were so many shots being fired, and I looked around who was next to me, and people were just getting hit. So you had some people who were going to the ground because they didn't want to get hit, and you had people who were going to the ground who were getting hit. And my first instinct is to run to the exit. And um, Angel was right behind me. And um, we fall to the ground, I get all bruised up, and um, my focus is to just get out. And um, as I'm getting out, I'm feeling just the bullets and debris just passing by me, and I, I was able to get out. And the only reason is because, um, because of Angel, because he got shot. You know, um, so he's he's uh, going through surgery right now. He's doing better, but uh, he's in surgery, yeah. And uh, he got shot in his back. He got shot in his back and in his leg. 
And as he fell, everyone was trampling over him. And in the process, he also broke his leg. Um, and I'm only here just because of him. I was okay besides regular bumps and bruises. And I, my only instinct was to help everybody else around me. I saw my buddy Juan, who is the bartender. And um, first thing I do is I see his wound and I take off my shirt and I just tie my shirt around his leg to stop the bleeding. I mean, that's just natural instinct. You know, you really? see gunshot wounds and I, I've been around scenes, but not to this extent. And um, I was just helping everyone who was shot. I helped another girl. Uh, she was kind of going into shock. Um, I, I recorded her a little bit and just applying pressure in her arm and just letting her know that it was going to be okay. I mean, and once I found out where all my family and friends were and realized that everybody was safe, it was only natural for me to just do my part. As all this is occurring, my, my frustration came from as I come out, there's so much shooting that's going on, it wouldn't stop. And I was yelling at the cops and I was telling them, why aren't you shooting him go in? And they allowed just so many shots. I mean, by the time I came out, there was already a hundred rounds that were already shot. And I knew where we were. I was already telling people there was at least 20 people that were dead from where I was coming out of that exit. So when I hear the news 50 and people are so, I'm not shocked by that because that's what we saw in there. That's exactly what was around us. My other friend, um, Evans, he was hiding in the attic. He was hiding in the attic. He was watching the shooter and he was scared. And right where we were, he said, Jeanette, the whole area that we were standing, there was about 10 to 15 people that were dead where we were. We were right by the bar, um, which is the corner part of the bar where Juan works. And we stayed in that area because we know him and he was getting us drinks. And uh, he's doing better now, um, you know, from his, his gunshot wound on the leg. Um, you know, thank, thank God. And, you know, people were taken away. Um, you know, they had trucks, so uh, police officers were coming with their trucks because EMTs weren't able to get through. And uh, they were just transporting people that way. We had people that, that were picking up uh, 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 people who were wounded and just trying to get them to safety. Um, it, it was as if you know, the, the community was trying to, to get together to help, you know, our community. We just wanted to make sure that everybody was safe. And if we were able to kind of put in that's just what everybody wanted to do. Jeanette McCoy, in her own words, you're listening to live coverage, Terror at the Nightclub from ABC News. This is a special presentation from ABC News, Terror at the Nightclub. Here's ABC News correspondent Alex Stone. Out of every tragedy come stories of hope and inspiration. You're missing a family member, a loved one. We will be here to help you. Um, you're hearing on a horrible, tragic, violent day the word love, and that's what we need to continue to do. Pam Biondi is the Attorney General in Florida. ABC's Jim Ryan is live there. And Jim, so many stories of hope and resilience. Hope, resilience, and yes, love. People coming forward, trying to donate blood, but finding that the crowds are so loud, uh, so large that the blood banks are asking people to make appointments, come back tomorrow. Just too many people who want to help. A GoFundMe account has raised over $500,000, more like 600000 at this point. They're shooting for a million dollars for the victims and for the families. And Edwin Sepulveda is a pastor in this neighborhood. He came out to console the people waiting to find out about their loved ones. Those victims had families, those victims had brothers, sisters, son, daughters, and they're still here. And they're gonna be suffering like anyone else. If that would have happened to me, I would have been devastated. So I am here to offer love. 
Alex, the city of Orlando drawing nearer to itself to get through the worst mass shooting in American history. Alex. And Jim, before we say goodbye, the scene there tonight is what right now? Still falling and still people standing around, most of them without umbrellas, looking down the two blocks or so to Pulse nightclub, the scene of such carnage just uh, under 24 hours ago. 50 people killed, 53 people wounded. Only seven of the victims so far have been identified. ABC's Jim Ryan has been there all day. He will continue to be there to cover the story, watching what is going on and the follow-up as we learn more about Omar Mateen and why and how he carried out this attack. Tonight, the Orlando police chief put out a letter to his department moments ago to his community saying, on the darkest day of my 25 years at the Orlando Police Department, I wanted to take a moment to tell all of you how proud I am of the work you've done today and will do over the next days and week. Our first responders and SWAT team members faced a hail of gunfire as they rescued the hostages. We are blessed and beyond words that none of them were gravely injured or killed. The letter goes on to say, please hug your families tonight and be safe out there. A letter from the chief of police in Orlando to his department on this night. When so many families impacted today at this hour, still waiting to get that phone call or knock on the door as bodies are being identified. They don't have official word what happened to their family members. For my colleagues at ABC News, I'm Alex Stone. You've been listening to live coverage, Terror at the Nightclub from ABC News.